Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 20th of October, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Um, well, we're going to get straight on with this uh, because as if we didn't know it, but the evidence was uh, demonstrated yesterday. Uh, UK democracy is dead. So first of all, let's look at how many uh, are in. Oh, sorry, I've got the wrong graphic up there. Uh, let's look at how many uh, people are in the House of Commons yesterday for the vote on the Coronavirus Act. Oh, sorry, did I say vote? Well, we'll come on to that in a second. What does that look like? About 30 people? Uh, well, I'm not even sure you can call them people. I'm going to be really ruthless here. Uh, so <laughs> not sure what they are, but but uh, 30 of them anyway or so uh, out of 650. OK, so uh, when it came to then, so they had uh, they had 90 minutes to debate whether to renew the Coronavirus Act. Now, remember, we've covered this extensively. It is an enabling act. It is draconian. It is effectively dictatorship. Um, but what was really incredible about this uh, was that they had 90 minutes to debate it. And then what happened? Well, let's just have a look at what happened at the end. The question is motion number four, as on the order paper. As many as are of that opinion say aye. Aye. Of the contrary, no. Aye. Aye. Could I have the no's again? No. I'm afraid, I fear, the mood of the House is not to have a vote on this. <laughs> I do understand. I think the Honourable Gentleman would have to rustle up a few more people to really get the sense that we required a vote when we do... I'm sure they will. So I think the eyes have it. The eyes. Thank you. So she thought that. Uh, it's quite incredible. We had 30... 30, 40 people in the room out of 650 people on the room. Uh, and she called for the typical the typical procedure in the House of Commons is they call for uh, a decision on the motion. And if there's no clear uh, difference in volume between the yeas and the nays, then they go to the division and they, they take a yeah. proper vote. But of course, there were more than 600 people not in that chamber. Um, so how do they know what the opinion was of the, the people that weren't there? Um, it's, it is incredible. Of course, it may not have changed anything because the Labour Party had decided that they were going to support uh, the renewal of the Coronavirus Act for another six months. Uh, and the first question then is, why? Um, so let's uh, have a listen to Jonathan Ashworth. Jonathan Ashworth is the uh, Shadow, Def uh, Shadow Health Secretary, and he explains why the, the uh, Labour Party decided to support the government uh, on this issue. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker. And... Uh... We do not oppose the renewal of the Act, and we will we'll not oppose the renewal of the Act in the division lobbies. But I do have huge sympathy with those honourable members who have raised concerns about the way in which this Act is scrutinised, and who have asked questions about whether there are alternative means for this legislation to be on the statute book. The main reason why we will not oppose this Act is because it pays statutory sick pay from day one, not day four, as used to be the case before this Act uh, receive royal assent. And to be frank, given that we've got a Chancellor who's been very keen to cut back universal credit, I'm not convinced that if this Act fell today that the Chancellor would carry on paying statutory sick pay from day one and would find time to bring forward an appropriate bill. So we will not oppose the Act. 
So let's just understand the situation here. Here we have a, an act, an enabling act, which covers a whole raft, hundreds of different individual items. And the Labour Party decided that they would not oppose the renewal of this act on the basis of statutory six pay. So this act has absolutely contributed to the decimation of the UK economy over the last 18 months. Goodness knows how many jobs lost or changed beyond all recognition. Uh, people's lives changed beyond, beyond all recognition as a result of government policy. And the Labour Party sets that aside because they, uh, of three extra days of statutory sick pay. If statutory sick pay is so important to the Labour Party, then they really should have uh, uh, organised some separate legislation for that. Uh, that's no justification for continuing this act. Well, I've just had my uh, earlier this morning, we were talking about why people were feeling so strongly about MPs and obviously scenes like that in the Commons are what creates the tension in the public. Uh, MPs behaving with complete disrespect for the general public. Obviously, the Act has destroyed lives, it's destroyed businesses, it's destroyed education, it's destroyed public health. And they're there in that chamber on their big fat salaries, snickering. Um, as if they were, you know, debating some minor bill of, of little importance. So disgraceful behaviour by the MPs, um, cocking a snoot at the public, um, mocking them, in fact. And then the next minute, they're turning around in the press saying that they simply can't understand why there's now uh, pressure from the public for MPs to do their job. So I, I think this is one of the most disgraceful episodes that we've seen, Mike. Okay, but uh, uh, Jonathan Ashworth went on uh, to perhaps explain a bit more about why they weren't really opposing this. But I do urge ministers to look at a better way and to find a better way for this act to be scrutinised. If we think back to March 2020, and I remember it well, a deathly silence was falling across the streets as we knew a deadly pandemic was set to spread with ferocity. We knew that this House had, had to act with urgency and haste. And indeed, I, as the Shadow Health Secretary, was invited into Downing Street to meet the Prime Minister, to meet Dominic Cummings, to meet various officials, to discuss, in principle, uh, agreeing to this act on a cross-party basis. And then the then Health Secretary invited me into the Department of Health on numerous occasions to sit down with him and sit down with his officials to discuss the contents of this act. And we proceeded on a cross-party basis because we understood the gravity of the crisis that we were facing. So that's the position that they're attempting to claim. A cross-party, so effectively a one-party state, uh, is what brought this legislation in. Uh, you need to look back through previous UK column news to, to get the, the details of what was in the act. But, you know, for example... Uh, one of the provisions in the Act, and I think we were discussing this this morning, Brian, is that, uh, of course, it's much easier to keep people in mental health institutions because only one doctor's signature is required to see people sectioned. Now, uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, provisions on uh, data collection, investigatory powers, and so on. This is a really draconian uh, piece of legislation. Uh, there's very little justification for its continued, uh, in fact, no justification for its continued use uh, in its present form. Uh, and this act should have been opposed. But let's just get a final, uh, a final thought from Jonathan Ashworth here. And there were things were put in this act that we asked for, like statutory sick pay from day one. But there were things put in this act that we didn't ask for, but in the circumstances we were prepared to go along with. And one of the things that we asked of the government 
working with the Honourable, the Honourable Gentleman from Holton, Price and Howden and other Honourable Members, was a regular renewal of this Act on a regular basis every six months. I think from memory we might have asked for an extra three months, but we'll have to double-check the Hansard on that front. But we certainly asked for regular renewals, and we certainly asked for different aspects of this Act to be able to be expired. But to be frank, I did not, perhaps I am naive, I did not anticipate that 18 months later that this Act would continue to be renewed on the basis of a 90-minute debate not allowing members to scrutinise it properly. A 90-minute debate where, because of the way in which the House has decided to debate it, honourable members cannot even put down amendments, cannot even have their point of view expressed on the order paper with respect to this Act. So I would really encourage the Government, the Executive who control the business of the House, to try and find a more satisfactory way in which this Act can be properly scrutinised. So first of all, he acknowledges uh, what's been going on, despite the fact that they won't take a stand against it. But then he's all a bit wishy-washy. Yeah. It's sort of a bit gentle. And really, we've got to, you know, you've got to do a little bit better. Government, the fact that you're acting as a dictatorship doesn't matter. Just just try to be a bit softer in your dictatorial procedures uh, in future. Well, this is it. Is you, that unfair? I mean, am I overstating that? No, or? because we, we nearly don't know what to say. This is so blatant. But this, how do we describe this guy? Certainly, there's nobody who's honourable there. None of them are honourable because what they're doing is absolutely dishonourable for the general public. But it's the arrogance and the ignorance. If this man had done his homework, he would know what the situation was and he would know that he, he would have to use the right projection and the right language. But he's a sheep uh, ready for the slaughter because he simply doesn't understand that the system of democracy he thinks he participates in still exists. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Um, so uh, somebody in the chat box during that was was uh, asking, you know, has the act then been extended for a further six months? Yes, it has. Why does nobody know that? Because <laughs> <laughs> there has been a pretty much a complete silence in the mainstream press on the issue. This wasn't really covered in the mainstream press uh, at all this morning. Um, None of the normal NGOs and pressure groups are saying anything about it either. Where's liberty? Where's, where are all the people that are supposed to be speaking out on these kinds of issues? Um, and of course, uh, the, the parliamentary uh, petition that we mentioned on Monday's programme. Um, so that's, what is that, about 70 or 80,000 signatures on that at the moment. Uh, but when, the, when that petition hit the 54,000 signature stage, uh, the government uh, rejected it already uh, and uh, and so you know that uh, there is clearly no uh, chance for democracy and democracy is gone in the UK at the moment it is a dictatorship uh, and with no proper press and no proper scrutiny uh, then uh, well it's going to continue apace yeah and I think we, we can say we we've had one particular very long-term supporter of the UK column that's consistently been saying we need to realise that the political parties are the cause of the trouble because they're not doing what they say they're doing. They are not there for any purposes that they claim or we believe. Mm. And he's consistently highlighted that if we are to correct the situation we see in Westminster, first of all, we've got to deal with the political parties. And I think that that opinion is now coming, uh, is the importance of that opinion is coming to the fore. Um, in the meantime, what's going to happen over the winter over lockdown? Well, uh, here's the NHS Confederation. They believe that the government should just go straight to Plan B uh, to avoid stumbling into a winter crisis. Um, so they want uh, Plan B moved from the 
being the backup strategy uh, to being the primary strategy. Of course, that means COVID passports. It means uh, mandatory face coverings uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, they also uh, have called for a package of further measures to support frontline services, they say. But uh, frankly, the frontline services require more than just some uh, further measures. They need a complete restructuring or something because frontline services simply aren't working. Um, Downing Street said there were no plans to uh, use contingency, the plan B contingency measures, which of course means, because uh, we can assume that they're going to lie as they've lied on a number of uh, these types of questions so far. Um, so that is very likely to be what is the case, the, the case that's coming. But uh, one of the key points that uh, the mainstream press was attempting to uh, uh, make today was, of course, although coronavirus cases are going through the roof at the moment compared to last year, uh, that the number of uh, hospitalizations and deaths uh, are below uh, previous peaks. But, well, are they? I mean, here here is the point. Let's just have a brief look at the latest situation. And the key thing here is that despite the fact that in October uh, they are perhaps lower than they were in January, and of course this is a bit of the the disingenuousness of, of the BBC because they keep talking about the winter peak, for example, and the other mainstream press as well. But of course, we're not at the winter peak yet, so let's wait and see what happens. But the key point here, as we've already mentioned on a number of occasions, is that when you look at what's going on at the moment, we're seeing excess mortality. But even more interesting, when you look at the nature of that excess mortality, as far as we can believe the Office for National Statistics at the moment, uh, and we look at the, that excess mortality, 50% of it, is uh, categorized as not being COVID-19. So uh, still nobody is asking the question of where what this excess mortality is. And when we're talking about, when the, the NHS Confederation is talking about further measures to support frontline services, why aren't they, why aren't they absolutely uh, knocking the walls of parliament down to get to some answers for how this excess mortality is being allowed to happen? Let's have another another look at the other ONS graphs on this. And you can see that there is excess mortality in hospitals at the moment, a little bit of excess mortality in care homes. But the, the majority of excess mortality is happening in people's homes. Um, and, uh, and as we've shown many, many times in this program, despite the fact that uh, in the summer of 2020 and in the summer of 2021, uh, the Mortality statistics were below the five-year average during those periods uh, at, in hospitals and in care homes. At no point has there been a month uh, with excess mortality below the five-year mortality below the five-year average in people's homes for the last 18 months. Uh, this is a representation of what has happened to our health service uh, because it is not providing health care for people and people are therefore dying. So uh, the question remains, um, what is the cause of the excess mortality? Is it as a result of vaccine adverse reactions? Is it a result of people not getting treatment for cancer, heart attacks and strokes? What is the reason? Nobody is talking about this and we need to get some answers. We need some answers. We need to remind our audience uh, again and we'll keep reminding them that the MHRA, the organisation responsible for monitoring the data of vaccine adverse reaction, has to date produced no analysis for public consumption at least, showing uh, whether its own vaccine adverse reaction data is actually correct, i.e. 
do the incidents that are reported actually relate to vaccine damage. Mm. So as long as the MHRA fails to do its public duty and report on those statistics, uh, we continue to work in a vacuum. Uh, meanwhile, the MPs are still speaking out uh, in favour of vaccines. This was a video clip um, sent to us this morning. Uh, I should have checked the date on it, but it's, uh, it's a recent video clip. It's valid, uh, whatever the date. And we've got Anne-Marie Trevelyan, MP, International Trade Secretary, uh, talking about vaccines. She also talks about some other things in the clip. This is a Sun uh, clip, but it's also got Sky News. And at one stage, I saw an NHS watermark on it. So it's very difficult these days to tell whether you're looking at the media or you're actually... Um, you're actually looking at something which uh, has been cooked up by the NHS. Mm. We just put that back on screen, Mike. This is some of the things that the Sun says are here. Booster jabs hold the key to avoiding the return of COVID restrictions this winter, the cabinet minister said. Well, that seems to have failed. Uh, Trade Secretary Anne-Marie Trevelyan urged Brits to come forward for top-up shots and help keep the new normal in place. But is there anybody wants the new normal to stay, Mike? No. No, there isn't. So... Uh, what's she talking about? Her remarks come uh, amid growing fears the slow rollout of third doses will leave the UK vulnerable to a third wave. There are concerns that immunity amongst those who first created the vaccine at the start of the year are now waning. And now number 10 has hinted that masks working from home and COVID passports may need to be brought in this winter. So more still to come, it appears. And ministers are increasingly worried about the number of new cases, which is hurtling towards 50,000 a day. Let's have a listen to the uh, clip and see what she says. So we've seen, I think, over 3 million uh, take up uh, the booster jab already. And uh, children, of course, uh, through schools are getting theirs. And there's uh, more announcements this week uh, to help boost that population. But I think really importantly, the booster jab for COVID is you know, is one that we are encouraging people to take. And uh, I've just had actually a text yesterday from my doctor encouraging me to go and have mine. Six months after your second jab that you will have had earlier in the year, uh, you have the opportunity to go and that. And of course, a flu jab as well. So we're encouraging all those who are vulnerable, anyone like me who's over 50, uh, please do uh, make sure that you get your booster jab to help make sure that we are able to continue living uh, in the back to, you know, new and all we're able to do as a result okay. of the incredible vaccine programme that we've rolled out. But as we move uh, through this transition in our domestic uh, heating arrangements to help those uh, who want to uh, crack on now and indeed over many years ahead to change their boilers to a clean energy solution. Uh, I don't know if you know, okay, but I've been restoring a house and I've just put in a hydrogen-ready boiler into mine uh, because of the nature of the house I live in. But we were already seeing a huge amount of investments, billions of pounds going through, as your package spoke about, the local authorities who were investing for those uh, who have the greatest need uh, to improve the insulation in their homes and the least personal resources to do it. So we're already making huge strides for those most in need to make sure that because in this, in this journey that we're doing, it's about reducing the amount of energy we use, if we can, as well as, of course, using clean energy. So making houses better insulated, as well as then having heat pumps as people uh, move to those clean energy solutions, is all part of this enormous and really uh, far-reaching package in the heat and building strategy today. Uh, I well, think you're we... making a bit of fun there, Brian. Well, uh... There was a little bit of fun in that clip, and I liked it a lot. Let's deal with the first thing, that she is pouring out um, advertising for the jab. She does not mention risks at all. She talks about children without mentioning the vaccine adverse effects and the risks 
on young children and the fact that the government has told us repeatedly over the last year that actually children are not vulnerable to the COVID um, virus in the first place. So what is in the mind of this politician? Well, it's the second part that really helps you understand. She only thinks what she's told. So when she's told that this is the line on vaccine, that's the line that she follows. When she's told that this is the line on new forms of heating, that's the line she follows. She doesn't actually think. She's simply there as a drone for these political parties, and she will pump out whatever the latest propaganda is. So I think very telling. But the good thing is that under that video clip, we start to see a little bit about how the public respond and how they are thinking. So let's have a look at some of this. I just took a few. It's heartening to read the comments. No one believes their lies anymore. I'm shocked at how many people will just accept the government, media and pharmaceutical companies telling them what their new normal life will be. Utter madness. Nobody is falling for this anymore. Ask yourself this question. If you don't have the media telling you every five minutes, would you even know there was a pandemic? I liked that one because I think it is, uh, is true. Two weeks to flatten the curve. Two years later, you need a COVID passport. More jabs than the bloody cattle. Uh, 2026, you just need this 25th booster and you can go back to normal. And the last one, absolutely mad. They're killing people with a smile too. So the whole point of this clip is to show the complete madness of the politicians, but to show that underneath in the comments from the public, people are clearly seeing through this now. So keep spreading the word. So the question is, what is the efficacy of the vaccines? What is the efficacy of a booster? Uh, well, of course, we don't know, but uh, this particular paper might give us a clue. So I do suggest that people read this uh, and maybe challenge their MPs to, uh, to, to comment on it. Uh, increases in COVID-19 are unrelated to levels of vaccination across 70, uh, sorry, 68 countries and 2,947 counties in the United States. So uh, this is the, uh, the title of it. It's from the uh, European Journal of Epidemiology, and this is a peer-reviewed journal. Um, and so let's have a look uh, at what they're talking about. So they produced this, uh, this graph, uh, which shows uh, vaccines uh, rollouts against cases, uh, and they are identifying some trends. So let's look at their conclusions. First of all, at the country level, there appears to be no discernible relationship between percentage of population fully vaccinated and new COVID-19 cases in the last seven days. In fact, the trend line suggests a marginally positive association such that countries with higher percentages of population fully vaccinated have higher COVID-19 cases per 1 million people. So that's very clear. They are saying that it's marginal, okay, but they're saying that uh, in populations that are uh, more heavily vaccinated, there are higher cases of COVID-19. It goes on to say, notably, Israel, with over 60% of their population fully vaccinated, had the highest COVID-19 cases per 1 million people in the last seven days. Uh, and the lack of meaningful association, they say, between percentage population fully vaccinated and new COVID-19 cases is further exemplified, for instance, by comparison of Iceland and Portugal. Both countries have over 75% of their population fully vaccinated and have more COVID-19 cases per 1 million people than countries such as Vietnam and South Africa that have around 10% of the population fully vaccinated. 
Um, so that is what this paper is saying. Again, the, the title of that paper, if you want to find it, it and it'll be linked in the show notes uh, under the video later on this afternoon. Increases in COVID-19 are unrelated to levels of vaccination across 68 countries and 2,947 counties in the United States. So let's see, full fact, let's see the BBC, fact checkers everywhere, get onto that one and uh, let's see what you have to say about it. Yeah, if, if they do at all, Mike, of course, because we're seeing some stunning silences at the moment. Uh, absolutely. Uh, OK, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. Also, do share our material on the various platforms. Uh, and uh, once again, a massive thank you to everybody that has grabbed uh, a hoodie from the UK Column shop. That is also very much appreciated and your support. Uh, is well it's being used for productive purposes uh, on the basis that uh, UK column is growing and we'll be more on that in the coming weeks um, but we'd also like to say if you're not a subscriber perhaps you're new to the UK column and you're watching at the moment for free perhaps you would consider subscribing uh, because to expand we need your help um, and uh, a quick uh uh, notification that Ian Davis, who writes for uh, InThisTogether.com, but also for the UK column, uh, was interviewed by James Corbett a day or two ago. And that uh, you'll find that at CorbettReport.com slash interview 1688. Um, I strongly recommend everybody watches that and, uh, and pays attention to it and shares it indeed. Excellent. Well, into emails, and we received this email today, which we think is really interesting. Uh, it's about changes in the NHS. Hello, Brian. I work for the NHS. There are a few things currently happening that I thought may be of interest if you're not already aware. The clinical commissioning groups are legally changing to integrated care systems from April 2022. The ICS includes mental health, local authority and police. The aim is working together for safer communities, including safer housing. Secondly, Public Health England has changed its name with no announcement made to staff within the NHS, let alone the general public. Their new title is the UK Health Security Agency. Further good news, deprivation of liberty, dole safeguards are changing for community situations. I think those two words go together from March 2022. So some really um, interesting things there. Of course, we know that the NHS is being ripped apart. It's being destroyed. And of course, one of the ways you do this is constant change, changing names for no good reason. But those names coming in seem to be rather threatening. The UK Health Security Agency, we'll have a bit more on that. The second part of the email was this. Finally, a government consultation on making jabs compulsory for NHS staff is due to conclude on the 22nd of October. Once again, our organisation has failed to announce this and we are only aware due to someone flagging this up during a large remote meeting, positively reaching around 300 members of staff. I believe Javid has suggested no jab and get out and get a new job. This I recall is the beloved NHS. They were and are so desperate to save, so desperate to save the NHS. They prepared for hundreds of nurses midwives, care assistants and doctors to leave, not to mention the many other professionals. Javi is apparently furious at anyone who has not conformed. I wonder if he has. Best to confirm what I've put here via the team's superb reporting and scrutiny, ensuring accuracy, but do hope this information is useful. 
channel and work you do is great. Thank you. Well, thank you for sending that to us. And of course, we, we say in response, we did know some of that. We didn't know other bits. Uh, but we asked the UK Health Security Agency is one area that we've been reporting on for quite a long time. Just to remind everybody, it is the merging. This is more fusion doctrine and, and these new, what, what was the uh, ICS stand for again, Brian? The ICS of that is the integrated care system. So you could describe that as fusion doctrine. And and, and in fact, uh, UK Health Security Agency is the same because it's a merger of Public Health England, the Joint Biosecurity Centre, NHS Test and Trace, and the Centre for, for Pandemic Preparedness. That is all uh, coming under, well, it, it in fact went live on the 1st of October, uh, and we reported it on that day. If you want to go and have a look at the uh, UK column news from the 1st of October, uh, and uh, and this uh, is the lady who is the chief executive, Dr. Jenny Harris, uh, and uh, what a background she has. If you want to find out about that, um, watch the UK Cold News from the 1st of October. Right, but fusion is the key word, and yes. we're going to be dealing with more of this uh, when talking about prevent in a couple of minutes. Uh, but essentially, you think you're dealing with a health agency. No, no, you're dealing with your local authority and the local police. That's an interesting situation. Um, okay. Uh, well, this one, uh, I nearly forgot about this one. Thank you also to a viewer that flagged up this. Um, an excellent talk by the GP, Bob Gill, talking about what he describes as a corporate takeover of the British National Health Service. Uh, well, of course, many, many people warning about the privatisation of the NHS over a great many years. Bob Gill is one of them. He's done some very good work. We know uh, with any speaker, they're not always to everybody's taste, but we think this one was deserving of some uh, promotion. And we'll remind people that Bob Gill was one of the speakers in the um, UK column sponsored NHS talk, Dying for Good Health. If you put those words into our search engine, you'll actually come up with a lot of articles dealing with this breakup of the NHS. And uh, we hope to have the... Um, the website videos up again at some stage in the future. Yeah, the uh, the Dying for Good Health videos uh, were victims of the Vimeo takedown, and uh, I haven't got those back up again yet, but uh, that since they're increasingly relevant, we'll get those up as soon as possible. Now, let's uh, just remind everybody uh, of Dennis Hutchings, who, of course, has been facing trial in Northern Ireland for in Belfast over the last couple of weeks uh, over a murder charge, uh, over killing during the Troubles. Um, well, Dennis Hutchings sadly died on Monday. Uh, it, it is just an incredible situation. Don't really know quite what to say about it. But anyway, uh, the decision to prosecute according to the, uh, you know, now that he has passed away, uh, people are starting to cover, attempt to cover their backs. So the decision to prosecute uh, according to the public prosecutor in Northern Ireland uh, was in the public interest, uh, they say. But look, we've got to remember what was going on here. Uh, this resulted from a, an operation in Northern Ireland where uh, John Pat Cunningham, who was 27 at the time, was shot. Um, and, well, there, this prosecution was about that death. Um, we can have a conversation about that. But really, the important thing here is why did this happen, uh, this particular prosecution? It happened because of the legacy investigation branch uh, of the police service of Northern Ireland, deciding that they would reinvestigate, and the key word there is reinvestigate, uh, alleged killings uh, during the troubles by the British military. But my view on this is 
that if you're going to live by the rule of law, then the rule of law only exists if the law applies equally to all parties. So if there is a legacy investigation branch in police service in Northern Ireland investigating the activities of the British military, then there should be also investigations into the activities of the uh, people on the other side, the IRA, INLA, and so on. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not possible because Tony Blair decided that as part of the Good Friday Agreement, he would send uh, letters of immunity from prosecution to the two members of the IRA. Um, so this was what he said when that eventually became public. But I'm not going to apologize for sending those letters to those who should have received those letters, because without having done that, we would not have a Northern Ireland peace process. So this is the key point, isn't it? Because uh, there were deaths on both sides of that conflict. Every death was tragic. Um, but uh, the British military and their operations in Northern Ireland uh, were responsible, individuals were responsible for every bullet uh, after it left the chamber until it reached its final destination. Uh, and it's only the British military that seemed to be that there are demands to be held to account at this point. The other side, uh, there are no such demands and you do not have the rule of law under those circumstances. Law must apply to everyone equally. The prosecutions against these military personnel, in my opinion, need to stop on that basis or if you're determined if the government is determined to continue these prosecutions then the, the prosecutions have to be on both sides otherwise it just isn't right now if you want to see more background on this uh, have a look at uh, david ellis report uh, episode one it's on the uk column website uh, and uh, dennis hutchings gives some uh, uh, background to this and there's more background to just who dennis hutchings was and so on uh, but I have to say, Brian, that in this case, uh, Dennis was extremely ill. Uh, he was only able to attend, uh, I think, I believe it was, he was at, in court every other day because every other day he was on dialysis. Um, so he was extremely unwell already. Uh, and I'm going to say the government in this case oh, excuse me. Ha have effectively hounded Dennis uh, to his death in this case. I, I think that's absolutely the case. Um, they knew what they were doing when they started these procedures. And of course, again, this is um, a lopsided application of the law. What does that do? That starts to break down society. So we're seeing it in the NHS. We're seeing it with the COVID policy. Um, but the British government turning on uh, elderly gentlemen like this, this particular man, they know what they're doing. It's orchestrated. Um, now, in the chat box, there's a comment there saying forces of the crown should obey the law. This, of course, is absolutely true. Um, but uh, the, 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 what's the term? The, um, uh, well, anyway, the rules of engagement in this case, um, that the law has to be clear and the rules of engagement have to be clear. And in this case, uh, of course, uh, this was a decision that was taken, the decision to fire, that is, was taken. Uh, during an operation, a patrol, uh, when somebody was uh, was running away from the from the army uh, uh, in the middle of the night, yes. Um, so you know, there there's lots to this case and lots to the other cases uh, to to understand, and it's a bit uh, it's oversimplifying the situation to say that that uh, people should obey the law. Of course, they should. But the question is, uh, what was what were the, the the rules of engagement that they were operating under at the time? I'll, I'll just bring this in, Mike, um, for extra time. A couple of days ago, I mentioned a video uh, which you can find online. It's Afghanistan colon 
um, the surge, and it's it's about American Marines operating in Afghanistan, but it talks about the interaction with, we'll say, terrorists, vert commas, in Afghanistan, and also the local population. It's a one hour, 50 minutes long, very, very informative document as to how documentary as to how difficult these situations can be. And of course, you'll see in that particular doc, documentary how difficult it has been for the troops to even understand the situation in which they've been placed. That's Afghanistan. This was Northern Ireland. But we have more or less the same factors applying. Yes. OK, let's uh, come on to online safety and censorship and so on. And here is the wonderful Damien Collins. Uh, he's the former chairman of the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee. Um, and he is really uh, a staunch campaigner in favor of the restriction of freedom of speech uh, and dealing with what he calls disinformation and misinformation. Uh, he is now the chair of the uh, British Parliament's uh, Online Safety Bill Committee. This is looking at the uh, draft bill, which is going to come into Parliament in the not too distant future. Uh, but just to set the scene here, let's uh, look at a couple of the comments that Damien Collins has made in the past. Uh, so he's saying social media companies making money out of a system that is also exposing people to harm and they're responsible for it. Uh, the social media com company systems are designed to promote content to drive engagement. So they are actually promoting illegal content. Um, well, that's very interesting. Is he claiming that uh, uh, content is illegal when it isn't? I'm not quite sure. Uh, he went on to say, and I think we have to consider what the right sanction for that should be. Uh, on another occasion, he said, I'm pleased that the government has accepted the central recommendation of the DCMS Select Committee's report on disinformation and fake news, uh, and that the social media companies should have a legal liability to take down harmful content. So now it's not illegal content, it's only harmful content uh, hosted on their platforms. And this is a very key uh, point um, because uh, the question in the online harms bill, they talk about content which falls below the threshold of illegality, but which is still considered harmful, and that is not defined. Uh, so it's devoid of definitions in many cases. But anyway, on Monday, the, uh, online, select uh, the online Safety Bill Committee was holding an evidence session, uh, and uh, the so-called Facebook whistleblower, Sophie Zhang, uh, was giving evidence. So uh, let's just have uh, a quick uh, listen to uh, what Sophie had to say here. Like today, people are concerned about free speech with regards to what you can post on social media. But I personally see this as a smokescreen and distraction because what the concern is really is not free speech, but rather freedom of distribution. In, in, in the past, if neo-Nazis were allowed to speak out, people, people were not worried that their ideas would, would, would spread widely and be disseminated and, and reach others. But today there exists that concern. And, and so no, no, one, no one has the right to freedom of distribution. I mean, just because The Guardian doesn't want to publish you doesn't mean that you're being censored. And and and, I, and so and so I think it's important. And so I want to be clear that this isn't the area of my expertise. But others have talked about the way that social that social media algorithms amp, amp, create an incentive create an incentive for people to to, to, to to write discussions that that are sensationalist or attention drawing or emotion grabbing. And one of the easiest ways to do that, sadly, is making valid claims that fall into the realm of misinformation or hate speech or, or the like. 
So what I find uh, the most fascinating about that little clip uh, is that uh, Sophie Zhang talking about uh, the right to free speech, it's really, that's fine, but you've got no right to distribution. Um, and this is a central tenet of the online safety bill. And it's incredible that somebody who's there to give evidence uh, to inform potential legislation is echoing what the legislation already says in its draft form. Um, so uh, the, the uh, online safety bill talks about protecting freedom of speech. It's very key. A part of it that it's very much talking about the protection of freedom of speech, but it is totally having a chilling effect on the possibility of uh, that speech being uh, distributed on various platforms and so on. So let's just uh, briefly have a look at, uh, at what else uh, Sophie Zhang was saying. Um, Facebook observably ne neglects and allows disinformation campaigns to prioritize profits. Again, it's amazing that uh, Sophie is uh, talking about something that uh, Damien Collins has already commented on. Uh, Sophie said, Facebook observably allows authoritarian governments to manipulate political discourse. So again, we're pushing the Russian narrative here. Uh, Facebook observably and was more reluctant to remove fake accounts if those accounts were connected to political leaders. Uh, I guess that's a dig at Trump, maybe. Facebook observably let fake engagement run among developing countries' online communities. Uh, and Facebook senior management observably shown in, showed indifference and uh, deflection when facing the issue of political manipulations on Facebook, uh, that their senior management had a conflict of interest, both to keep uh, good relations with political leaders and set rules for unacceptable violations, uh, and that uh, Facebook uh, based political manipulation uh, Sorry, Facebook-based political manipulations issues could be countered if adequate staffing and funding was allocated, is, is the claim. Um, so it was an interesting evidence session, but the bottom line here is that the themes uh, throughout the evidence seem to be uh, correlating very well with the themes that are already in black and white in the draft, draft online safety bill. So I think that is pretty much what we're going to see laid before Parliament uh, in a few weeks' time. Somebody in the chat box has said UK is basically being run by foreign interests. And um, we get some interesting questions. Bill Gates back in the country yes. meeting with Boris Johnson. Who is Bill Gates to be um, interfering into any level of uh, UK policy? Uh, lots of questions to be asked about these companies. Well, let's come back to um, uh, Sir David Amos. And on Monday, we reported on the BBC's report. This was there. Headlines Sir David Amos stabbing what we know so far. And what we were particularly interested in was that the BBC was flagging up the prevent uh, scheme. And they said here that Ali Harvey Ali was referred to the counter terrorist prevent scheme some years ago, but was never a formal subject of interest to MI5. And we just uh, pointed out that that little statement was in the BBC's article without any source. So you didn't know where this had come from. It appears to be correct, but we still don't know where the, where the statement originates from. Uh, we also pointed out that, uh, of course, we have to go back to Theresa May getting very excited uh, as her efforts on the prevent strategy came into position. And she was paying tribute to Lord uh, Carlisle of Berry, who had pr provided independent oversight for the review. So he agrees that this is a sound strategy for preventing the threat of homegrown terrorism. And I believe that it's a strategy that will serve us well for many years to come. 
Well, those were the good words on paper under Theresa May's signature, but what appears to be happening is something rather different. So let's get into the BBC's latest report, and here we are, Prevent Scheme, Why the Government's Programme is So Difficult. And the BBC, very clever, because they got a nice emotional picture in there with the, the balloons, our thoughts and prayers are with your family at this difficult time. So the BBC always plays up the emotional side before it then does the reframing applied psychology. So the program's apparently diff uh, difficult. Uh, they said straight off that news that the subject held in custody over the killing of MP Sir David Amos had earlier been referred to this scheme has reinforced calls for it to be overhauled and uh, made more robust. So we notice that the BBC leads off its article with what is clearly a political nudge that we need to get more of the prevent system in place. And uh, when we analyse what that means, we, the UK column, are going to be warning that this actually means we're going to have more state terrorists snooping and lockdowns and the whole thing is going to become more dangerous and invasive. Well, who did the BBC use to quote? Um, well, it used this gentleman amongst others, Hugo McPherson, and he said it's really important that it, Prevent, remains independent from law enforcement, that it operates in the pre-criminal space. Ah, pre-crime, I see. Pre-crime, and into my mind, Mike, came thought crime, and I got a deeply uneasy feeling about that statement. But I was also fascinated as to perhaps who, that, who this man is. But later in the article, he went on to say this, one of our successes that people forget is when a group of would-be jihadists in Birmingham went through the programme, changed their minds and deliberately burned their plane tickets to the conflict zone. So I'd, I'd just like to ask, who, who is the hour? It was our success. Who is he talking about? The BBC doesn't tell anybody. It simply puts his claim in the paper. Um, where's all the evidence to back up this claim? What is he talking about? No, no, the BBC isn't going to tell us that. It just simply wants us to uh, believe what's in the article. So who is this man? Well, if we have a look, um, we can find quite a lot about him. Um, here's one of the reports with a lot of his uh, CV. Uh, so he's Brussels, his location is Brussels, Brussels capital region, Belgium. Work, Middle East youth, deployable civilian expert on standby for the UK government stabilization unit and a media associate, Arabic and Islamic world press team. And if you, work, uh, if you read through, he's claiming to have been all over the place. Um, so Pakistan, Syria, Egypt, Afghanistan, Qatar. And he's also worked with the Al Jazeera network. And then down here it says, I'm now usually well equipped to direct organizations which need to understand better about leveraging soft power. That's a phrase we've heard before, Mike, isn't it? And cementing relationships between Islam and the West. And then he's talking about Middle East scenario planning, press liaison and business. Uh, youth actor mapping and stakeholder engagement planning, high-level policy consultancy with special Midi Middle East focus, media PR planning. Um, so this is a young man with quite a background, uh, but he's just allowed to quote in the BBC without uh, any more ado. Now, if you get further on, it gets even more interesting uh, because it says that um, 
He's worked on that work with Al Jazeera, which is a favourite, you think, of the BBC, Mike. Well, staffed by mostly ex-BBC people. Yeah, ex-BBC people. So um, he's obviously a friend of the BBC. Uh, I translated bomb-making manuals, fatwas, and other web-based jihadi communiques from Arabic to English, liaising with JTIC staff in London. Uh, we'll come on to that in a moment. Uh, down here, it's got, uh, he was interpreter and coordinator for Gulf State Special Forces as they undertook intensive counter-terrorism training by HM Special Forces. This is no ordinary person, Mike, is it? I think we're now starting to see that this man has been an asset of organisations, including the UK state. Mm. Is he independent, I wonder? I helped design and build and promote a nationwide independent radio network of 30 stations throughout Afghanistan. Uh, well, if we look at the state of Afghanistan now, um, I wonder what those stations achieved. Um, but here is the, J, um, the JTIC that he referred to, and we've got to go to NATO for that. And this is the educational and training solution for maintaining an increasing alliance competency in the joint targeting process through formal qualifications. So. I think we have to say very gently that this uh, gentleman appears to work very closely with the British state. So is he giving an independent opinion for the BBC or is this the official policy being ejected back in? Uh, well, we can get a bit more of him here. And uh, this was very interesting because uh, if we highlight this bit here, um, it's saying that uh, he's heading up the network at the European Strategic Communications Network. I'd never heard of this. I was fascinated. And if we go and have a look for a little bit more on it, we can find it here. The European Strategic Communications Network is a network of EU member states funded by the European Commission, which collaborates to share analysis, good practices and ideas on the use of strategic communications in countering and preventing violent extremism. It's been identified as, quote, flagship initiative in the European Commission's European Agenda on Security from April 2015, as well as the Commission's Communication on Preventing Radicalization from June 2016. So this is amazing, young man, then. So he's got, moving between British government institutions, European Union institutions. NATO. NATO. He's just in amongst them all. Yeah, but he's the man to actually say, is the British uh, public safe under the... Uh, under the prevent strategy. So at this stage, I start to feel that the public should be slightly uneasy about what they're being told here. But let's just finish off the uh, EU segment because this comes through to this uh, document, communication from the Commission. This is dated uh, the 24th of um, July, July, thank you, 2020. Uh, and it's on the EU Security Union Strategy. Uh, there's quite a lot to this document, so we can't obviously deal with it all, but let's just read a couple of sentences. The Commission's political guidelines make clear we can leave no stern unturned when it comes to protecting our citizens. Security is not only the basis for personal safety, it also protects fundamental rights and provides the foundations for confidence and dynamism in our economy, our society and our democracy. And it goes on to say that we've got a tremendous problem with uh, the potential of terrorism. And then, of course, you see the final paragraph there saying that COVID-19 crisis has also reshaped our notion of safety. So now we've got 
international Islamic terrorism entwined with supposedly problems over COVID-19 and supply chains. Security mixed with health in this document. And uh, if we just give you a little bit more uh, of it, it says the EU has already shown how it can bring real added value. Uh, since 2015, the security union has brought new linkages in the way security policies are addressed at EU level, but it needs more to be done to engage the whole of society, including governments at all levels, businesses in all sectors, and individuals in uh, member states. So every single level of society, including the individual, is now going to be drawn into this um, uh, security, but ultimately the prevent strategy. So if we pop back to the BBC, let's have a look at a bit more of their article. They had a quote from this man, Dr. Rakib Essan. Uh, the mismatch in resources between extremist ideologies poses an all too real prospect of Islamist extremists who present a significant security risk not being sufficiently monitored by public authorities. So essentially he's saying that our existing prevent system is too soft and it needs to be tightened up. And I was interested that I could find a little bit of him in action on talk radio. So this was tweeted out that he'd actually done a little interview. Let's have a little listen to what this gentleman had to say. Two very short clips. That the suspect in the case of the terror related murder of Sir David Emmis, it has been reported that he was referred to prevent some years ago, but he wasn't part of the scheme for very long. So I think, understandably, much of the British public will be questioning the effectiveness of prevent and our broader counter uh, counterterrorism structures. Yes. Because the problem, uh, it seems to me, is that the, 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 the authorities are now saying there could be many, many more of these bedroom radicals, as they're calling them. Mm. People who have been um, doing nothing but sitting at home during lockdown, basically being radicalised into extreme Islamic fundamentalism. Well, I, I think that that's something that I've written about a great deal, Mike, that with the lockdowns associated with the COVID-19 pandemic, there, there was the risk that... Uh, vulnerable individuals would spend more time online and that they would enter dark territories on the internet and that could contribute towards radicalization under lockdown. So it could be the case that we, as, as we have opened up, that we are living in a very different society and that phenomenon of bedroom radicals presents a significant terror threat. Yeah, absolutely right. And it is a terror threat that is very real, but also almost impossible to track, isn't it, Ricky? Well, it's incredibly difficult. As you know, Mike, we saw the suspected terrorist attack in Kongsberg. Yeah. Uh, in, in Norway, where the suspect there was considered to be uh, self-radicalised. And I think that that is a particular problem from the Islamist terrorism, um, in terms of Islamist terrorism, who's traditionally perpetrators involved in Islamist terrorism. They're usually affiliated with uh, well-established Islamist organisations. Well, here we, it could be the threat of self-radicalization, people being uh, radicalized uh, within online arenas, uh, which, which uh, encourage 
violent acts. Mm. But th these arenas online, Mike, they could be loosely organized extremist influences. That, that So it's, we're looking at these kind of uh, online spheres which operate partly or, or completely outside of traditional um, terrorist organizations. Right. So interesting thread there. Apparently lockdown has meant that people have been locked up in their bedrooms and, and they've become radicalized. So surely we should be lifting lockdown at the, at the it should have been lifted immediately. Well, no, we don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> lots of ifs and buts and maybes, no actual evidence of the severity of this threat. Uh, what we've got is a lot of talk around it in order to bring in uh, the prevent strategy. So let's just, just a, a minute of additional talk by this gentleman. Let's listen to what he says. Because I mean, Anjum Chowdhury has been busy telling anyone who would listen that he couldn't possibly have radicalised this guy because he hasn't been online uh, for six years. But uh, I'm, I'm sure he's being slightly, uh, shall we say, careful with the truth there, economical, you might say, uh, because there's many ways well, of being Anjum Chowdhury on, online without actually being Anjum Chowdhury. No, absolutely. And I think that that needs to be reflected in our counter extremism efforts, uh, the degree to which there is extremist content, which has been hosted um, by various platforms uh, on the Internet and the kind of role that might be playing in radicalizing vulnerable individuals, especially those who are socially isolated. Yes. No, exactly right. So, I mean, as far as the change that Priti Patel can make as the Home Secretary in terms of mm. trying to, to keep a closer tab on these people, I mean, would it make any difference if MI5 had more control over Prevent? Well, I think firstly, if I could just um, go back to um, the murder of Sir David Emmis, what I find quite remarkable is the discourse and narrative which is surrounding the case. We've heard about uh, our confrontational political culture. We've heard about social media anonymity. And I do feel there's far too many people in, mainstream, in the mainstream media and in mainstream British politics who are deflecting attention away from the terror threat posed by Islamist extremism. Right. So uh, we talk about, uh, we've seen people talk about David's law associating um, that with clamping down on social media anonymity. Mm. If people truly wanted to do something serious and meaningful in Sir David's memory, what they'd do is step up their efforts in terms of tackling Islamist extremism, right? Yeah. But I mean, there is... I wasn't sure at the beginning. I mean, he mentioned Islamist extremism in particular at the end there, but I wasn't sure at the beginning whether he was just referring to that or were, whether He's... they're talking about a broader definition of extremism now? He's, mo he's mainly focused on that side, uh, but essentially um, the viewpoint being put across is that we've got something else to be terrified of. There is this huge threat out there. We are still not seeing the evidence for it, um, but the BBC bringing in this man to put the opinion across that uh, we need to tighten up, prevent. Mm -hmm. Well, he's from the Hen Henry Jackson Society, and if you don't know who that is, um, have a look online. Uh, these are some of the programs they get involved. The Programme Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism, the Centre on Social and Political Risk, the Centre on Student Rights. And if we go in a different direction, we've got the Programme on Asia, Asia Studies, uh, Russia and Eurasia Studies, the Centre for Global Britain, the Centre for the New Middle East. Who are these people exactly? Uh, well, if we have a look at the executive director here, uh, Alan uh, Mendoza, 
Uh, not only has he been fully engaged with the BBC, Sky, CNBC, Al Jazeera, Bloomberg, fully engaged with the media. Uh, if you read on through, you will find that, of course, he's fully engaged with the Tory party. So what are we seeing in the BBC's article? Are we seeing a proper analysis of what the actual terrorist threat is? Or are we seeing the BBC drawing together um, uh, an analysis which meets its agenda mm. of a tougher prevent policy? Well, we can be sure that the Home Secretary didn't want to say too much. The only quote from an anonymous person in the Home Office is this. Under the scheme, over a thousand at-risk individuals have been mentored through the Channel programme since 2012. Around 100 children safeguarded by the courts were stopped from being taken to conflict zones in Iraq and Syria since uh, 2015. And uh, once again, no evidence to uh, support that. And if I just finish this segment off, uh, we've got um, this uh, gentleman, Robert Buckland speaking, former Justice Secretary. He says he very much hopes that when it comes to community supervision and community involvement with people like this particular individual, that is much more joined up. Mm. So now we've got the thread. He wants more joined up action between the health service, education, whatever it might be. Does that mean fusion? Is this that... is fusion, in my opinion. And I think that element of being joined up is what we really need to work on urgently. There may be records or information from schools or colleges from the health service, which can tell us much more about individuals and their activities. I think we need to join this up much more effectively because what we're talking about here is community prevention. We've got to make sure that every arm of the state is working together in order to understand as much as possible about these individuals. And I'll end with this. The BBC now, with a major splash, that some people have been uh, pricked or stabbed with a, um, a needle, hypodermic needle, uh, in nightclubs, and they're particularly talking about Nottingham. And so um, what's, there's a need for people to be searched in nightclubs. So we're going to have the vaccine passports, and now we're calling for people to be searched. What else is left for the public to say that uh, they are safe from the state? So this is the question I think we've got to look at, which is the biggest risk, radicalisation or a fascist UK state. And we've started the news, Mike, with the fact that MPs are not even bothering to vote now for major uh, denials of freedoms to people in the UK. Um, OK, well, on uh, Monday, Brian, you were one of the questions you were asking was why did it take so long uh, to get uh, David Amos to, to hospital? Why were the, was he being worked on for two and a half hours uh, while uh, the ambulance and the air ambulance were apparently just waiting there. Uh, well, we've had some uh, feedback on this, so let's just have a look at it, um, if I can get it on screen here. Uh, as a retired firefighter paramedic, this is from the United States, with more than 5,000 emergency medical responses during my career, at the very least, the delay of Sir David Amos' transport to hospital is, to be charitable, highly unusual. Uh, this was clearly a trauma emergency that required immediate transport to a hospital where immediate surgery needed to be initiated to stop probable internal bleeding from vital organs. The paramedics should have taken more than 10 minutes, no more than 10 minutes to assess injuries, apply appropriate pressure dressings and high flow oxygen. Uh, they needed to uh, get en route to the ANE ASAP. Uh, they ideally should have started ECG monitoring in two intravenous lines with large bore catheters through which 
lactated ringers of normal saline could be administered at a maximum flow rate to maintain blood pressure at a minimum of 80 over 50. Uh, your reporter stated that the hospital was only five minutes away. I was trained that getting a trauma victim to surgery within the golden hour was critical if the patient was to have any chance of survival. And that's from Ken. And another one, uh, I'm a former IHCD advanced EMT, army combat med medical technician, and most importantly, a current member of the UK Colm community. In response to your request for opinions around the response of the ambulance crew on scene at the recent stabbing of David Amos, a few, a few things come to mind. Uh, firstly, all UK ambulance services have gone undergone a massive program of centralization, merging into large trusts over the last 15 years. And this has had several effects which may have caused issues. Uh, manpower is a big problem in most trusts. Single responders in ambulance cars are used to quickly get to a job, uh, stopping all the important dispatch clock, sorry, stopping the all important dispatch clock. So investment has been uh, in more of these cars at the expense of double crewed ambulances. Uh, it is eight minutes to a category A job, such as a stabbing. Uh, the problem with response cars is that they cannot transport patients to hospital uh, as is possible someone was on scene. So it was possible someone was on scene, but an ambulance uh, to transport was unavailable. Uh, dispatch would probably have been aware of the severity of the situation with an MP involved, and crews may have been told to stand off until the police secured the area, causing further delay. Any stabbing is treated as a surgical emergency, as even with small puncture wounds and little blood, it is impossible to see internal damage. So it would have been a case of scooping and running, uh, alerting the receiving trauma hospital of your expected arrival, which should have uh, lasted certainly less than one hour from dispatch, depending on the locations involved. Uh, a full resuscitation involving advanced life support is the only job a crew would be on scene for two and a half hours for. Uh, with recognition of life extinct protocols done on scene. And I'm guessing the police would have put crime scene procedures in place quite quickly. And that's from Terry. So uh, two very interesting comments there. And thank you very much for them both. Uh, but uh, there are still, still some, some questions. questions. Yeah. Yes. OK, now let's move on to uh, uh, the other big news of the day. Uh, net zero strategy, building back greener. Uh, Boris has announced the, the strategy uh, at last. Um, what, uh, well, we've got to remember what he was saying uh, a week or so ago on this. The strategy sets out how we will make, sorry, this is from the, uh, the foreword. This strategy will sets out how we will make historic transitions to remove carbon from our power, retire the internal combustion engine from our vehicles, and start to phase out gas boilers from our homes. Um, so let's have a look at what they're talking about here. Uh, an extra £350 million to up uh, sorry, of our up to £1 billion commitment to support the electrification of UK vehicles and their supply chains, and another £620 million for targeted electric vehicle grants in infrastructure. And we don't have to worry about where the cobalt and the, uh, the uh, lithium and other rare earths are coming from for that. I'm sure it'll sort itself out in time. Uh, then they also say that they're working to kickstart the commercialization of sustainable aviation fuel made from sustainable materials such as everyday household waste, flue gases from industry, carbon captured from the atmosphere, and excess electricity. Yes, good. Um, yeah, I'm frowning. If yeah. people don't know why there was the pause, I'm frowning. <laughs> anyway, £140 million industrial and hydrogen revenue support scheme to accelerate industrial carbon capture and hydrogen, bridging the gap between industrial energy costs from gas and hydrogen and helping 
greener hydrogen projects get off the ground? Well, uh, I'm just going to ask this question. I don't actually know the answer to it, but perhaps somebody can educate me. Um, if we look at the official narrative here, so here is uh, the British Geological Survey, and they're talking about the greenhouse effect. And they're saying that in descending order, the gases that contribute most to Earth's greenhouse effects are, and the top of the list is water vapor, and second on the list is carbon dioxide. So we have a program here to replace internal combustion engines, and one of the outputs of an internal combustion engine is carbon dioxide, we're told. Um, and we're going to replace that, which is second on the list, with uh, a hydrogen economy, a hydrogen-based economy. And when you burn hydrogen, you get water vapor. So we're going to replace the CO2 output, with, which is number two on the list, with H2O, which is number one on the list. And somebody needs to explain to me how that works and how that puts us in a better situation. But anyway, okay, this is what they want to do. Uh, anyway, 3.9 billion pounds of new funding for decarbonizing heat and buildings, including the new 450 million pound three-year boiler upgrade scheme. So homes and buildings uh, are warmer, cheaper to heat and cleaner to run. Uh, and of course, on Friday, when we mentioned this, we, we uh, highlighted the quote, which Boris didn't actually say, but I know this is what he's thinking. Uh, which was that, oh, by the way, gas boilers are banned after 2035. Don't worry, though, your annual gas bill will be £50,000 by then, so you won't miss it. Um, that is uh, basically where we're going. Uh, and uh, then £124 million uh, to boost our nature and climate fund, helping us, uh, us towards meeting our commitments to restore approximately 280,000 hectares of peat in England by 2050 and treble woodland creation in England. And of course, we must remember that uh, a lot of this uh, regeneration of, of uh, ancient natural uh, uh, land is at the cost of food production. Um, this is very much a key part of this agenda. And this is also reflooding areas of the Fenlands. Um, so we know that that's part of the package. Mark. Yes, we're throwing away hundreds of years of land management procedure. Yeah. But anyway, uh, the policies and spending brought forward in the net zero strategy mean that since the 10 point plan, we have mobilized as the government not we, uh, the, have mobilised £26 billion pounds of uh, government capital investment for the Green Industrial Revolution, £26 billion pounds of government capital investment. Uh, and if you remember on Monday's programme, we were talking about food and the fact that uh, £6.6 billion pounds is required, is all that's required to stave off uh, starvation in many parts of the world. But uh, that money isn't available for that because the last thing we want to make sure is that anybody had food. Uh, the only person that's excited uh, about this, as we mentioned on Friday, of course, is Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, she is so excited because she gets millions and millions and millions of pounds every time there's an offshore wind turbine uh, built. Uh, because, of course, uh, the Queen owns the foreshore and any licensing for the establishment of offshore wind farms means a huge bung to... Uh, the royal family, uh, that can't be bad, can it? Well, we are very pleased about it. <laughs> are, are we? <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, I would think. Uh, well, we're going to just end on, uh, is it a smile or not? It's a bit of black humour, really, but uh, this was sent in to us. Um, and uh, what have we got? We have got the Ladybird series of books is now finally getting the propaganda up for the children. So it's Peppa Pig. Well, Pepper gets a vaccination and um, that's all good because that's going to be going out to the children. So never mind uh, what their parents think and know about vaccines and particularly the danger to children. Um, it appears that the Ladybird books are going to be getting into the children's minds first. 
Yes. Um, now, we uh, will not have an extra for you today, I'm afraid, because, uh, well, as you can see, Alex was not with us today. The reason he's not with us today because he's on his way to Plymouth and uh, is due into the train station in not too distant future. So we, uh, we're heading down to collect him. Yes. So on this occasion, we're going to disappoint our regulars, but uh, we'll manage one on uh, Monday. Yes. Um, but we'll see you 1 p.m. as usual on Friday then. Okay, a lot in the news. Think about it. Please do your own research, warn other people, and it's up to all of us to uh, speak out and shout if we're to stop this madness, which is clearly being enforced by all the political parties. They're all in it together. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. bye.